Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anu Nupadier, and thanks for joining us. Happy New Year, Modern Lawyer Podcast listeners. Today's episode addresses one of the fastest moving, most fascinating areas in the law today, blockchain and cryptocurrency. We're joined by June Kim, a former Kirkland and Ellis attorney and AGC at Goldman Sachs, who's now the general counsel at blockchain startup O1 Labs, based out of San Francisco. This episode explores three key things. One, a basic primer on what attorneys need to know now regarding cryptocurrency. Two, what technological developments in smart contracts and transactions could replace rote, low-level, and inefficient legal work. And three, a survey of major recent breakthroughs in the cryptocurrency world, including DeFi, or decentralized finance, and CBDCs, or central bank digital currencies. This is some mind-blowing stuff and some amazing technology, which may be less than a decade away from rapidly restructuring how the legal industry operates. As always, if you like our discussion, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the conversation. June, thank you so much for joining me on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It is a pleasure to have someone on to talk about blockchain. So I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much for having me today. I'm really excited to be here. So June, I always start out with just a a background and introduction. You've got a fascinating backstory. You've got a very impressive backstory. Uh, Tell our our listeners how you ended up in your capacity as the general counsel at a uh, kind of generally put a, quote, blockchain company, and we'll get into that. But give us your backstory. Sure. So uh, I started my career, like many other attorneys, at a big law firm. And when I became a fifth-year associate, I had the chance to join Goldman Sachs in their in-house division. Um, I was in their asset management division for three years when Bitcoin, at that time, went to the moon. And that's when I first started understanding blockchain technology. And I was explaining to the board of directors as well as senior management. And I had a chance to also work at a private equity firm um, right after Goldman. Eventually, I found myself in Asia at a company called Terra, which is an Asia blockchain technology company that has operations in South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, and Mongolia as uh, their GC. I spent time about a year and a half at Terra, and I now find myself as a general counsel in a San Francisco-based blockchain company called O1 Labs, which is incubating uh, sort of a a layer one protocol, which is what Ethereum was uh, many years ago. So interesting turns of events, but I think somewhere along the line, I found myself um, really into blockchain technology and what it could do for a lot of people, as well as lawyers. And I'm here now. Again, thanks for having me. And that's my quick background. Like most introductions, June, there's so much to unpack there. I I love that. Uh, And so talk us through... you know, going from a fifth year associate and, you know, at that point, you're kind of a mid, mid to senior level uh, attorney. And at some point you moved over from the outside counsel uh, side of things to presumably in-house, if I, uh, if, if I heard you correctly at Goldman, and then you, you seem to pursue a kind of a financial services career after that. 
do you still view yourself as in financial services or are you kind of working on something maybe a little more, I don't know, uh, like large scale or broad at this point? I think definitely latter, although I think if you understand blockchain technology, it's hard to count finance out as one of the use cases. So I would say primarily looking to help build out a protocol that encompasses various different ways blockchain could be adopted in companies as well as individuals, and finance being a really big part of that application. And it's really funny, though, I only went in-house through uh, luck in the sense that when I was a summer associate at a law firm, a senior associate liked one of the work products that I was doing. And that was it with that one senior associate. And when I became a fifth-year associate, I got a call from him out of the blue saying, hey, I worked at Goldman for the past four years. I'm looking to replace myself with somebody I trust. Do you want to come over? Um, so it really happened randomly and fortuitous, <laughs> fortuitously. And I think um, at that point, I had a general idea that I'm interested in financial services, how money works and money flows between different institutions. And I think when I finally met blockchain, I kind of found my uh, calling, if you will. Uh, luck and good fortune, but also extremely good work product that's <laughs> stuck in that attorney's mind. So so uh, that that is... That is a great story. I love those those types of stories. Um, y- you know, your 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 work product must have been uh, very good to be remembered many years later. Um, so, you said that O1 Labs, and we're going to kind of delve into blockchain. But you you said that O1 Labs is, and I, I took some notes here. Quote: Incubating a layer one technology, which Ethereum used to be. Tell our listeners uh, what is a layer one technology. And what exactly are you incubating here at uh, O1 Labs here in in San Francisco? Sure. Um, At a very high level, when people say Bitcoin, Ethereum, they're really talking about cryptocurrencies. And each of the cryptocurrencies resides in a blockchain network that is unique to that particular cryptocurrency. So Bitcoin has its network. It processes transactions certain ways. Ethereum has its other network. So think of it as kind of, I I guess the best example is Nintendo Switch and PS5 in a different way, because it's it's easy to understand both as a gaming type, but they're different systems. And one game may not come out in one of those systems, right? So you could kind of view them as kind of alternate versions of what a blockchain is supposed to be as envisioned by the directors. And Bitcoin really is the forefather of all the blockchain discussion, but Ethereum sort of came out as um, a competitor. And many years ago, people used to call it altcoin or alternative coin. And now it became such a staple and um, well-understood cryptocurrency among uh, many people. Owen Labs is trying to create something like Ethereum by providing solutions to one of the, the technological limitations of blockchain today. And uh, we're hoping to launch it early next year. And it's going to be a protocol separate from Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, but it'll have its own use cases, its own advantages, and its own cryptocurrency that um, people might be able to buy through exchanges. I want to play a little devil's advocate here, June. I, I recall many years ago, maybe four, five years ago, attending at various legal technology conferences, these sessions about how blockchain is going to change legal and how it's going to change the legal industry and how 
every attorney should, you know, study up on blockchain and smart contracts and any other applications because change is coming and it's coming fast. Where here, here we sit recording this in, in 2020, and I think the vast majority of attorneys would sit there saying, hasn't hasn't affected me. I haven't seen any change coming. You know, why should I believe that that blockchain and a lot of what uh, very smart people like you in blockchain are working on is actually going to make it to me. I mean, what what is the compelling kind of evidence that blockchain is going to affect how um, lawyers ultimately practice law or have to think about the world? Yeah, no, and I think that's a really, really good point and hard for me to argue against. What I'll say to that, though, is it takes time for technology to adopt um, in, in a mainstream way. So just like 10 years ago, nobody understood Bitcoin. Right now, everybody understands Bitcoin and it's on use. Back when Bitcoin was very popular, people didn't understand, in my opinion, what blockchain technology meant for enterprise solution or for the day-to-day lives and how that impacts the, um, the moms and pops. But what I'll say is, you know, through the past three or four years, there's been a lot of mainstream adoption of cryptocurrency. So an example of that is if you're a PayPal customer, now you could buy the cryptocurrency with it. You could use it as a funding source for one of its 26 million merchant network, right? Three years ago, we didn't have that. Various big financial institutions are developing their own cryptocurrency to facilitate transactions uh, across border. Um, countries are thinking about developing its own cryptocurrencies and digital versions of its you know, currency. And most importantly, private sector has resource dedicated to researching, patenting, and developing blockchain technology uh, so that it could be used in in, in a more uh, widespread manner. So I think the main difference between when you first heard about Bitcoin and blockchain and what it is right now is that private as well as public sectors have come a long way in understanding the value of blockchain and we're actually a lot closer to blockchain changing the world than we were back then. Yeah, it's a it's a great answer. I think it sets up uh, something that I want to uh, raise as well. And I shared this with you before we started the call. But this is article that that I read that just came out yesterday. So it is uh, you know, highly topical. And the headline is Ernst and Young and Microsoft expand Xbox Enterprise Blockchain Platform for Rights and Royalties Management. And then the the sub bullets are one of the largest production implementations of a blockchain based financial system of record manages Microsoft's end to end processes for rights and royalties to its Xbox gaming partners using machine learning to digitize and onboard contracts designed to deliver transparency, faster payment processing and near real time calculation of royalty payments with integrated data visualization for insights across contracts, statements, invoices and accounting records. And I want to read you just one more portion from it and. That is uh, from a person named Paul Brody, uh, the EY global blockchain leader, says the following, quote, blockchains could well become the glue that digitizes interactions between enterprises. This go live represents another big step on that path, extending the level of automation and cycle time compression all the way from digitizing the contract to posting financial accruals. Blockchain solutions like this help raise the bar for enterprise integration 
from point-to-point integration to ecosystem-level automation. June, talk us through this. What is what is going on here? Uh, I'm seeing a lot of a lot of things like you know with this expanded blockchain, Microsoft is able to quote accelerate contract digitization for faster contract creation using AI based on Microsoft Azure. And when we talked about this offline, your first response was, "Well, this is the kind of thing that." Uh, could automate out or replace uh, the work of a first or second year associate at a large firm. First, talk us through what this uh, development means for you at a high level, and then tell us what you mean about automating out the work of maybe more junior members of a law firm's team. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I think this is such a good segue and a good example of how blockchain is really transforming how lawyers do business. So what this essentially is, is Microsoft not only has uh, a team dedicated to implementing blockchain, but it also has one of the best AI technology in the world. So this is a culmination of those two, where it's using its AI and incorporating that into the creation of smart contracts and implementation of smart contracts. And, And this AI is in fact on blockchain ledger automating and digitizing contracts, typically what a first year or a second year law firm associates would do, right? So for instance, many years ago, when I was asked to draft a distribution agreement or even a royalty agreement, I start start out with a form of the agreement that's hundreds of pages. And then I get input, I, I spend hours charging changes maybe on this section, corresponding sections there, and then sort of doing a page flip that way. What this technology is potentially saying is that that's all being automated and digitized. And it's done on a sort of this kind of internet setting where it's not a first year associate doing all that anymore. The form itself is probably handled by um, smart contract and any sort of difference in, let's say, royalty terms or market terms or indemnification could be baked into the technology itself when generating such contracts. So if you take a step back, right, what is blockchain technology good for? It's good for removing middlemen and intermediaries. So many people think, all right, the biggest competitors to blockchain is bank, because if I could send Bitcoin to you without a bank, I'm not incurring transaction costs. They're also missing the other part of that, which is A lot of our jobs are intermediated, right? So accountant, you need them to populate financial statements and answer financial questions. What Microsoft is saying is we could do that by creating a smart contract and have the invoices and financials accrue in a way you don't need a middleman to do and therefore incur cost. Same thing with lawyers. If we could take the contract, repetitive contract, if you will, and automate it using blockchain and AI, then why do we have to pay your first-year associate $400 an hour to do something that we could do it instantaneously and with probably a standard of deviation that's acceptable to to them or, or their clients? So in my opinion, this is probably a really, really good example of how technology is competing against our uh, current business model and law firm in particular. That's it's a it's a great summation. Can we get kind of deeper into this the this smart contract like creation and assembly? I mean, in this model, I mean this Ernst and Young Microsoft deal or any any kind of similar 
deal or similar arrangement uh, that comes to mind to you. How does that happen from, you know, and I'm obviously speaking from some ignorance and speaking uh, with a sense of awe about all of this, but, you know, I, I suppose, I suppose my question is, how can that form and the attorney working on off of the form, how can that be easily replaced through a blockchain? In, 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 in a sense, I'm asking you to explain to us how smart contracts really work and how it could replace someone. Yeah, at the very high level, and I don't know the answer to that question because I haven't seen their secret sauce yet, but I could describe how a person might approach that. Um, So at a very high level, right, smart contract is just an input and an output. So if there's a a set number of input, that creates a set number of output. And it also supports algorithm in the sense that it takes an equation and it creates a a variability and and various different outcome based on that algorithm, right? So if you take a form and let's say the form has, I don't know, 1,000 different variables, you put that into a code and you put in the right input to create a different output of your choice, that's essentially at a very high level how I imagine smart contract work. And the reason why I said that um, they're focusing on royalties is that there are form agreements that are very repeatable, right? It doesn't super variate from uh, one agreement to the other. And that's what I want to focus on. NDA is another example, and other types of distribution agreements, maybe one, maybe ISDA, if you trade commodities. To the extent there is a form and the variation doesn't really differ, then I think you could create something out of a smart contract to produce an output that is acceptable to the client. And ultimately, this is the automation and if somebody somebody could argue like it's not as good as a human eye, that's true, but it also doesn't have human error, right? So that's something that blockchain experts would argue. So it, it has its pros and cons, but ultimately it's very cost efficient. And in my opinion, it doesn't work for some agreements like let's say share purchase agreement, where it's it's highly contested and highly um, revised. So that's just kind of how I think about it. And I I'm not sure if Microsoft shares my uh, view, but if if I were to look at this from a third party perspective, um, that would be my first thought. How scared or how worried should we be in legal that this headline reads EY and Microsoft expand enterprise blockchain platform and not insert Amlaw twenty five firm and Microsoft expand Xbox enterprise enterprise blockchain platform? I mean, why do you think uh, big law firms are not at the front row in this? And uh, should it worry uh, us that uh, you know, Deloitte and EY and PwC and all the, the big accounting firms really appear to be at the front lines of this and law firms don't even appear to be in the, in the stadium? I think you should be very worried if you're a law firm because it's not, you know, two companies that we've never even heard of coming up with the solution for clients, right? So EY, I think, is really handling this from kind of financial and accounting perspective. Microsoft is using its AI for contract perspective. So you might think, oh, well, we shouldn't worry about that because it doesn't have the kind of the touches that an associate or a partner could do. But if you take a step back, right, unless you're 
a Fortune 500 companies with infinite cash on your balance sheet, cost is always going to be at the forefront. And there's going to come a time where enough people uses legal tech like this, um, sponsored by prominent players like Microsoft and EY, with the right amount of results and satisfaction from those results, that you're, you're going to see kind of unfair um, encroaching into the territories of some of these um, law firms. Um, if I'm, let's say, a law firm that is one of the top five in M&A or bankruptcy that you know is, is very specific to those practices, I might be less worried. But if I'm sort of a law firm that does securitization or other types of kind of quantity of, of different um, agreements that don't really vary from one to another. And I'm sure a lot of my securitization lawyers will hate me for saying this. Um, apologies if I get it wrong. I, I would be worried because this is creating a solution for, for the clients. And ultimately, um, it's hard to justify against that, right, if the clients win. So long story short, I, I, I would be very worried depending on what kind of law firm you are. Yeah, it all, I guess what my perspective on this is, is, is that it almost seems like law firms are being cut out of the deal, right? I mean, in, in the sense that <laughs> you've got Microsoft on the technology end, EY, as you said, on the financial end and, and auditing end and, and, you know, maybe kind of quarterbacking how this happens. It seems, for, you know, and, and look, I'm a, I'm a uh, former litigator, practiced law for a number of years at a large firm as well. And it seems to me that I kept scrolling down this article to see what law firm was involved because we're dealing with these contracts and these digital transactions and all this stuff. And I was waiting to see, you know, K&L Gates or Morgan Lewis or, <laughs> and it just, it never happened. It's only mm -hmm. entities. That's, that's gotta be a wake up call to, to some extent, right? I mean, when you have senior leaders at a company like Microsoft, which employs scads and scads and scads of outside counsel, um, but here, there's a you know, major advancement, and there's no law firms in sight. Yeah, it's it's um it's very um troubling, in, in my opinion, for for a lot of different law firm associates, especially junior associates, where a bulk of their hours might not be high level advice, but really contract review and revision. I think. Maybe, maybe not. You know, in in the next few months, this is going to change how legal um, billing or or work or invoice will work. But eventually, if you give it enough time, my guess is this technology will largely change how law firm bills and the types of work that will come their way. It also could be viewed as um, opportunity. So the fact that you didn't see any law firm in there, maybe that is an opportunity for the firm to invest in understanding and um, maybe partnership or cooperation with players like this to make sure that if they're not, if they can't beat it, they should uh, stay one step ahead. Right. Um, I had on a partner named Judy Rynearson, who is, I believe then at KNL Gates, and I think she's now a partner at Morrison Forrester, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong about that. But uh, she talked us through how KNL Gates was uh, kind of applying these uh, blockchain sandboxes within the firm, you know, with, with no no real client attached to it to acclimate their attorneys to understanding blockchain and thinking about it, presumably to step up at times like this when the client comes to the table with some sophisticated problem and blockchain could be the answer. 
Do you think that many, many more law firms are going to kind of standardize a blockchain group in their in their law firms going forward? Um, I asked this to you as someone who used to be at a large law firm who kind of went from you know the financial services side of a large law firm to in-house. Um, do you see this as an imperative for at least the you know AMLA 50, AMLA 100 to kind of explicitly, just as they have a an appellate group or a products liability group or a securities group to have a blockchain group, um, or am, am I out ahead of my skis uh, when when I when I'm kind of predicting that? No, I, I think um, 100% um, it is imperative from from where I sit, and and I might sound biased because I'm in the blockchain industry. But if you think about it, if you feel like based on your law firm business model that this type of um, product offering will be attractive to your clients based on the types of work that they provide and the types of agreements that you deal with, then in my opinion, you have to stay one step ahead to see what alternative you could offer for the clients to make your product competitive, right? If you don't have a solution to something like this, maybe six months, one year later, then it, it just becomes a zero-sum game in terms of whether you have the clients or not. So the investment, I think, will lead to um, a discussion of like, you know, inspection of this is what our business is. But also, if the, if, if the, if, for instance, at Goldman, what they did was, all right, if Brexit happens, what is our scenario? If Brexit doesn't happen, what is our scenario, right? Big banks always sort of think about different options, and that's why they're so good at what they do. I think law firms should do the same. And in my opinion, um, legal tech and blockchain could be something that will force them to awaken their long kind of um, dormant and and maybe not as changing uh, uh, business model. So if they're content with that, then that's fine. But if you feel that this is a threat to your business model, absolutely. And I, I encourage you know, law firms to create an inter-law firm um, sort of dialogue on this because it's it's hard for one law firm to truly kind of understand the, the gravity of this. It's an industry transformation. So as an industry, I think you should be prepared. In one of our prior conversations, uh, I asked you, you know, when do you think lawyers across the country, right? Not just in, you know, tall skyscrapers in New York City or, or uh, LA or something, right? But, but when a, a large number of lawyers will have to interact with something involving blockchain, and you said a lot of things, but one of the things you said is there's going to be a time when a client uh, wants to pay using a cryptocurrency. And as, as Bitcoin becomes more and more common, and as more and more companies appear to be trying to you know, bypass transaction fees and cross-border transaction fees, et cetera, it seems increasingly likely that a, a firm, whether that's a mid-sized firm or a large firm, will have a client soon that says, yes, how can I pay you in X cryptocurrency? How soon do you think that'll happen? Again, I'm asking you to make an impossible prediction here, but when do you think that will happen? And what do you think are the um, legal issues, concerns, problems surrounding that? Yeah. um, The short answer, in my opinion, is shorter than you think. (laughs) It's hard to give a a set um, timeline, but shorter than you think. And I have a couple things going for uh, that answer. First is, Bitcoin is mainstream. 
Um, its price is super volatile. And if I give you Bitcoin right now, I don't know how much I gave you, but it's mainstream. And you see all these um, companies allocating a percentage of their entire treasuries in Bitcoin. You see a lot of uh, these payment companies partnering with exchanges to issue uh, cryptocurrency cards. So I don't think cryptocurrency will be a taboo or a weird asset class soon. I think it's going to be understood and accepted by many people. So if I could um, send you a large amount of money through sending you cryptocurrency without incurring transaction fee for, let's say, cross-border payment, and if I could do that instantly, because blockchain transactions occur very quickly, then I think as a law firm, how do you insist on a different type of payment? Right. You should at least consider accepting that form of payment if it's uh, large enough. And I think as time passes, it will keep growing, in my opinion, because of the second factor, which is stablecoin. Stablecoin is a cryptocurrency that doesn't fluctuate in value. So if I give you one stablecoin that's packed to one US dollar, I gave you a dollar because you could later redeem that for one USD. And stablecoin transactions. Um, get all the benefits of blockchain technology, but you see this stablecoin developing very, very quickly, more fast, in my opinion, than any other cryptocurrency. So JP Morgan came out with its own private stablecoin. Goldman Sachs announced that it's going to use JP Morgan's stablecoin for repo transactions, I think, like a week ago. And JP Morgan already told people that, look, if, if you're you're in South Korea, and you want to send your money to US, you might be able to do that through JP Morgan stablecoin. And if that's accepted by a bunch of different banks, and somebody wants to give you JP Morgan stablecoin to, to settle for transactions, you need to have a wallet. You need to know how private key works. You need to know how to accept it and then later redeem it. You need to know how to book it in your balance sheet. I mean, these are all the questions you don't want to face when your first client requests this type of quote-unquote wiring. Um, it's something you want to get ahead. So I think there's mainstream adoption, understanding of uh, cryptocurrency as an asset class, and the rise of stablecoin are all pointing to the fact that you know how you deal with clients on a day-to-day basis um, may change, and it may incorporate cryptocurrency sooner than you think. That that is fascinating, and it feels um, like it could be right around the corner. I agree with you. Um, we, your your discussion of stablecoin. And the JP Morgan um, coin, for want of a better word, uh, leads me to a discussion also on CBDCs. And then I want to cover very briefly with the limited time we have left, uh, I want to cover DeFi as well. Just as, uh, you know, we're kind of at the grab bag segment of this, right, where I want my listeners to know what these two concepts are. I think they're going to be critical in the future of how we interact with cryptocurrencies, especially as lawyers, or at least what we all should know about as as attorneys and, and legal professionals. So start out with CBDC. What is it and uh, why is it going to become increasingly important? Sure. So CBDC is uh, short for central bank digital currency. And if um, the best way to understand that is it's a, it's a digital currency. So instead of um, me holding fiat or one US dollar bill, um, think of it as one cryptocurrency representing one US dollar that is backed by the country, that is issued by the country, so that you no longer have to 
um, use fiat for any transaction. CBDC is, um, is, is being developed right now. So World Bank and International Monetary Fund are putting together a coalition to lead G20 countries to study and later implement uh, a CBDC framework that should be considered by each of those countries. Um, CBDC has gone through a beta version already in China. Uh, so Digital Yuan has um, already been disseminated, used, and right now it's going through a lottery system where it's being airdropped um, into the wallets of uh, various um, Chinese citizens. And U.S., in my opinion, is a little bit behind. It doesn't see the urgency to create a digital dollar yet. But if enough countries um, do progress ahead, um, then I think it's a matter of time before it has to ante up, right? Um, Europe has come out and said that EU will probably have statements on its CBDC soon. So what does this mean? This means that CBDC may be a nation-sponsored way to conduct transaction. And CBDC is you know, often correlated with blockchain, right? So it's, it's a coin on a blockchain. So again, going back to what I said, it relates to that in the sense that if CBDC does come around um, in the near future, and that is a way um, transactions happen, and not only impacts the money you receive as part of your services, but your portfolio companies and clients and how they think about money, right? So you have to understand that technology in order for you to understand your clients and their needs. So I think this is just a, another really interesting development that's happening that could have a wider uh, implication to various sectors. I'll, I'll take a, uh, a short break there before I move to DeFi. <laughs> yeah, no, I, so one question on CBDC, and that is that um, presumably the main benefit of CBDC, uh, you know, let's just take a, a like U.S. dollar coin or something, right, issued by the U.S. government in uh, like with, with an intention of replacing fiat. Presumably, the main benefit of that is global transferability. I mean, what what is the other like what what would be the reason for a a country to step away from fiat because you know if if you're the vast majority of Americans you have a bank account and um you know I could fairly easily transfer and again as an individual not as an enterprise you know transfer money from one bank account to another and it seems to me at least uh, in the way I I might do it, it seems like digital money, right? It seems like the money isn't really tied to anything. Um, what is the what is the benefit for for a country like the U.S. to say, hey, we're 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 going in this direction of CBDCs and we're going to replace a fiat dollar with a a blockchain based dollar? Yeah, and actually that's a really good point, and I think that's why the U.S. Um, the government, uh, as well as Fed, aren't that time-pressed to move forward because, at least within U.S., settlements are occurring very quickly and it still is the dominant currency globally. So if, if I'm a somebody in U.S., then yes, I don't really feel the need to roll out CDC anytime soon. But if I'm a person in Cambodia or if I'm at, you know in a place where the, the currency is not as strong or if I'm in China, and I want to, let's say, prevent um, Alipay from taking large chunks of shares away from banks in, in terms of capital, then there, that is one way for you to track 
how CBDCs are being moved. Um, you could get data on it. You could also control and, and revert the power bank uh, back to the banks who might be distributing or issuing um, CDB, CBDCs. So there are different use cases for different countries. But what I would say is when more countries adopt CBDCs, it'll be harder to stay not CBDC in the sense that, you know, if you're thinking about global trades or global transactions, I think uh, you'll be pushed toward that direction by uh, a momentum. Um, you also want to think about what this means from like macroeconomic perspective in the sense that if China has fully, you know, rolled out a CBDC and it wants to try something really interesting, I don't know, let's call it a basket of local currencies comprising of yuan and four other Asian countries and push that as the main sort of currency transaction method, then your dollar dominance is directly attacked, right? So there's various different ways that you could sort of create this. And I don't think China will ever say that it's creating this to compete with U.S. dollar. But it's something to sort of look out for and and react to. Um, Just because you don't feel the immediate need right now as a U.S. citizen doesn't mean that um, that'll stay that way, in my opinion. June, this stuff seems like it's out of Blade Runner or something. I, this, <laughs> this is very futuristic, verging on dystopian. Uh, I mean, it is, it is um, it's extremely fascinating. I'd love for you to give us a, a sense of what DeFi is uh, over the next minute or so, and uh, and then we will wrap. But what is what is DeFi? Yeah, so DeFi at a high level is um, decentralized finance, and the reason why I think it's worth briefly covering that here is it's what Bitcoin was 10 years ago, and it's what Bitcoin will be 10 years later. DeFi is essentially uh, a way to trade using smart contracts without any financial institution. So you don't need banks, broker-dealers, and you're really making trades on liquidity that is built by the protocol on smart contracts and in various DeFi projects. The reason why it's relevant is, quick stat, um, in October 2020, a DeFi project called Uniswap processed more transaction by a count of $2 billion US dollars than Coinbase. So it has already come to a point where assets are coming in and out more into DeFi than your typical CeFi or what we call centralized exchange. And I think um, there's tremendous um, technological benefit to this. And DeFi also has um, tokens that people could buy representing governance rights in those projects. And it may be a matter of time before DeFi becomes its own sub-asset class that um, will need legal representation. Because, you know, right now, regulators, in my opinion, cannot keep up with the the pace in which these projects are developing, but it will want to weed out bad DeFi projects. And I think as DeFi becomes the next big player, it probably would want a lawyer or a law firm to understand uh, how it works and what it stands for. So that's why, you know, it's topic du jour. It's worth briefly kind of putting it on everybody's radar and keep an eye out for as, um, as time passes. June, that, this has been extremely illuminating. I want to thank you on behalf of Case Text, on behalf of the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It has been awesome to have you on. I, I really appreciate your time and uh, and your sophistication on this to enable you to share all of these thoughts with our listeners. I appreciate it. Thank you for uh, having me. Um, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onan at casetext.com 
tweet at us with the hashtag ModernLawyer and check us out at ModernLawyerPodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, as well as our audio engineer, Brian Becker. See you soon.